Let us pray. Gracious God, on this beautiful day, on this Lenten day, on this day that you have made, help us to rejoice and be glad in it. Help us to rejoice and to be glad in your word. Help us to rejoice and be glad for the gift of coming together in community. Silence in us now, any voice but your own. And as we hear your word, transform us for Christ's sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to John, beginning at the 13th verse of the second chapter, reading through to the 22nd verse. Let us hear God's word. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My parents, as youth, I think I remember this correctly, attended a Billy Graham revival in Akron, Ohio. Perhaps you saw Graham at some point. He came to Rochester more than once. I know you probably saw him on television at some point. Thousands, perhaps millions, were impacted by him. Now, with no bias at all, I confess no real influence by him except to be aware of his status as a cultural phenomenon and being given consideration in all of my church history books. Graham's death has produced a steady stream of opinion. Articles and posts continue to come to my inbox. I'm working through them day by day. One such piece had this headline. He filled stadiums and counseled presidents. Now I need to do more thinking on this. Perhaps we do some of that thinking together over time about Billy Graham's brand of evangelicalism, his action or his inaction on social issues, his continuing impact and legacy. I do have a concern, however. 
And much of that concern has nothing to do with Billy Graham himself. It has to do, rather, with a melding of religion and politics and culture, whereby any brand of religion is equated too closely, is aligned too squarely and neatly with a particular party or a position. Now, don't get me wrong, I want stadiums filled preferably be with Presbyterians, though that's not likely to happen. And I do want faith values to influence the culture, though I'd rather it be influenced in ways agreeable to me. And that's the problem. Faith becoming too cozy with culture, too popular whether evangelicalism in this era or progressivism in another era or any stripe of faith in any era. That would seem inherently unjust to any American who is not a practitioner or a believer in that particular set of values. And more importantly for us, for we who seek to follow Jesus, it would challenge the very nature of our faith itself, which by nature is countercultural and wary of earthly power. That wariness is what we encounter when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. A dramatically clear clash of faith with culture and with power. And that's what the small, struggling first century church in Corinth was trying to figure out. What they believed, how to live the faith. Jeremy read from Paul's first letter to that community. Paul writes about the foolishness of the cross. Foolishness? Who wants to believe that? Paul writes... God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Those are alternative values to the values of popularity and culture, market-driven sensibilities, conventional wisdom. We live in a zero-sum world with haves and have-nots, with winners and losers, but not with God, Paul says, not with the cross of Christ. Here, wisdom equals foolishness and Foolishness equals wisdom. Here, weakness equals strength, and strength equals wisdom. Here, death equals life, and the cross equals hope. Kyle Fever writes that Paul takes the language of wisdom and subjects it to the cross, which has now become the criterion, the benchmark for understanding and for grasping reality. The foolishness of the cross, Fever writes, redefines nothing less than the reordering of the world. Scott Josesi writes, 
The world has its standards. The world knows what is strong and what is weak, what is effective and what is ineffectual. The world has defined intelligence and wisdom and can identify them when it sees them. The world has likewise defined stupidity and foolishness and can spy those things pretty readily too. It's a dog-eat-dog world, only the strong make it to the top. These are the things the world knows well. And Hotzi continues, We'll know, Paul says. This is the way the world works, true enough, but not with God, not with the way of salvation. No, here God appends it all. We are not saved by power, but by weakness. We are not saved by wisdom, but by apparent folly. We do not enter the pathway to eternal life through the portals of Wall Street, but by heading down a blind alley that appears to be a dead end, a parallel universe in which the weak are strong and the foolish are wise, and dead cul-de-sacs lead somehow to shining streets of gold and a kingdom without end. A meditation from the Taze community poses this question. Why is the cross, the worst failure and utter folly, the language of God's wisdom? Because it reveals the power of love and shows how far Jesus' gift of his life goes. Several years ago, a few of us, leaders of congregations across our denomination in various settings, were were thinking about all this. We knew the statistics, we knew the reality very clearly. Loss of membership in our denomination, declining financial support. There was also a perceived loss of cultural influence though that's harder to measure, and that's one of the things Jim Hudnut-Boimler will consider next Saturday morning. Yet rather than bemoaning the fate of our denomination and complaining about reality, rather than seeking to recover what might never have been, we sensed also a deep hunger for something new and something vital. So we gathered a few people, and then a few people more, and started something called Next Church, a movement, a conversation about what was next for the Presbyterian Church. Could there be a revitalized, faithful future? This past week, we held our annual national gathering in Baltimore with nearly 700 in attendance. And while, of course, we would all welcome more members, and of course, we would all welcome more dollars, what we really seek is renewed faithfulness, new and creative ways to think about mission and education and worship, new ways of thinking about serving and connecting in our very polarized and very evolving cultural moment. 
Our theme was the desert in bloom, based on Isaiah 35, how we can find hopefulness in wilderness settings. And it occurred to me that Christians, us, Christians, we are continually called to do that, to live out our faith in the wilderness. If things get too easy or too cozy or too comfortable, if our popularity is too accommodating, our faith too aligned with the status quo, then it's time to reevaluate and recalibrate. And I keep thinking on an annual meeting Sunday that this place, with its story, is a perfect laboratory to see what the next church might look like how we might find blooms in the desert as we journey through the wilderness. Frederick Buechner writes, the message that a convicted convicted felon, let's start that again, the message that a convicted felon was the bearer of God's forgiving and transforming love was hard enough for anybody to swallow and for some especially so. For the Greeks, Buechner writes, as Paul puts it, it could only seem absurd that a convicted felon was the bearer of God's forgiving and transforming love. Could only seem absurd. And it still seems absurd. It still is absurd. Yet it is our faith, our belief. We believe it will transform lives and transform the world. We believe that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And we experience that in the cross toward whose reality we continue to move in this Lenten season. Fools. All of us fools. Fools with faith in the love that will not let us go. Love that dies for us in order that we might live. Amen.